patriotism, faith, national unity, education, fiscal responsibility, civility, the values that define America. Fascinating stories and talks from America-loving patriots dedicate to preserving freedom, opportunity, and justice. Welcome to the Friends and Fellow Citizens Podcast. everyone and welcome to episode 107 of Friends and Fellow Citizens. I'm your host, Sherman Tylosky. Thank you all so much for joining me. If you're new to this podcast, be sure to subscribe at the end of this episode. We've got links down in the show notes below, links to subscribe and to subscribe to our email list. Hope you're all having a wonderful October. Perhaps for some of you, you're probably thinking about what to get for your kids' Halloween parties and trick-or-treating, and all the rest in the future. Once again, as a reminder, make sure to also check out our little merchandise store down in the link in the show notes below to get a really great quality Made in America mug. And it's just a wonderful way to support the program, so hope you will consider purchasing one. Free shipping on all orders. Philip Livingston was born in the year 1716, he was a hardcore New Yorker, so for all those New Yorkers listening, or anyone you know who's from New York, this man might be the perfect guy for him. Not sure what he was like in person, if he acts anywhere like a classic New Yorker, but Livingston was part of a very prominent and wealthy family, the Livingston family. We'll discuss a bit more about what the Livingston family composed of in terms of the kinds of people who were involved in this huge movement of the American Revolution and really just the independence movement. There's a lot of work that goes on as the spanning multiple generations. Uh, well, today is our focus on Philip. There is going to be some reference to a couple of notable people who hopefully we might be able to cover in a future episode because they, they really provide a different view of the family, but also maybe a view a different view of the revolution movement itself. Every single signer that we've looked at has had some some sort of similarity with another signer. We've also seen significant differences on backgrounds. Some were lawyers, some were farmers, some were merchants, uh, some were businessmen. And Philip Livingston was a prominent merchant. As growing up, he learned the trade through his father and through the, some of the work that he was able to do in regards to things like real estate, as well as being an importer. I wouldn't say that Philip was a very well-known person. Like I said, his family was very prominent, but he was one to slowly get into that mix. And he eventually did with the introduction of the Stamp Act. Now, the Stamp Act was that first major piece of legislation that was passed by the British Parliament that essentially said, basically, if you bought a lot of things, if if you bought almost anything, you had to put a stamp on it, and that stamp had to be paid for as a tax. It was like a tax on a, a whole lot of different things. It was particularly a big issue for printed items, so playing cards, newspapers, even probably even books and, and some other materials as well. What happened was, was that it was something called the Stamp Act Congress. This was the first major gathering of delegates from across the 13 colonies who decided that they needed to take some kind of action to counter against the Stamp Act. Now, while it wasn't really an official Congress, it wasn't like the Continental Congress, it was the first major gathering of prominent people, including wealthy businessmen and lawyers and 
other politicians, and one of those members was Philip Livingston. Livingston initially was like some of the other signers that we looked at. They didn't really get on board with this idea of independence until a little later. They saw probably saw a lot of evidence showing that this that this cause had some sort of merit that there that there could be some kind of resistance against the British at the Stamp Act Congress. Philip got to know well another gentleman, and and this gentleman, while it's not documented as well as I wanted to, looking trying to look through a lot of sources, there was one gentleman also named Livingston, and it was Robert Livingston. Now, Robert Livingston, for the sake of differentiating between Livingstons, because there's so many people and I always get confused, but there is there are two Robert Livingstons here. The first is the one I just mentioned. The second is Robert R. Livingston. Robert R. Livingston is the son of Robert Livingston, whom I will call Robert Sr. So Robert Sr., and I'll just say Robert Jr. to refer to his son. At the Stamp Act Congress, uh, Robert Sr. and Philip uh, are part of that same group. And ultimately, that's how Philip really gets into politics, is through uh, part of his family connections, uh, part of it is uh, in learning as a businessman how to make connections with fellow merchants, and he also was very much in favor of the economic side of putting pressure, that business pressure, on the British. Uh, I'm not sure exactly which which sort of acts he was mo- most in favor of, but you can guess that it also probably had to coincide with some kind of business interest, interest too. Because by putting more pain on the British merchants, his business is his can obviously profit too. But this this was a very common common theme. You know, I'm I'm just saying that people like John Hancock they were also in 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 a lot of business activity too. This is this is just part of the movement. Part of the movement is is not just the profitability element, but it's also the funding. Because when you're trying to get militia, when you're trying to get people on board with the independence movement. If you don't have funds, you don't have anything. And this really, really depended on people like Philip to come up with funds, to learn how to raise funds for the militias uh, later on down the line. Just to kind of recap some of the things that he was able to do during his political career, which I think are, are perhaps most important to consider, um, it was, was not necessarily the governed bodies that he was part of. He certainly served in the New York Senate. He served as he served in the First Continental Congress. Uh, he predominantly looked at a lot of different other institutions uh, that contribute to political activity in New York and, in, and broadly in American politics. He was a very big founder of King's College, which eventually became Columbia University in New York. He also founded... Uh, the New York Society Library in 1754, and he also founded the Chamber of Commerce in 1770. All these institutions are institutions that could influence politics, but also in places where people could learn and people could lobby, form into groups, and to fight for whatever interest they wanted in politics. Livingston was also very active, as I said earlier, in in government, he was able to, I think, really do do a good job of back and forth. You know, on the one hand, helping to found institutions in part because of his of his uh, of his wealth and his power. 
but also him serving in the Continental Congress. What is most interesting is that Philip wasn't, like I said earlier, he wasn't a very, very prominent person. He was more of like a fill-in for his family. The Committee of Five was the the, the Committee of People, the, of Founders and Delegates, who came up with that first revised draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, working with, uh, you know, including Ben Franklin and others. Um, and one of these members was Robert Jr. Uh, so Robert R. Livingston was part of this Committee of Five, but Robert Jr. also had some other duties in New York State. And because he was kind of torn, he was work- basically working two big jobs at once, he decided for the signing of the Declaration of Independence to task his first cousin once removed, uh, the, the man who knew his father, essentially, uh, Philip Livingston. So Philip is tasked to sign the Declaration of Independence, and he is obviously one to not, unfortunately, not be able to make it for that initial sign, but he did eventually make it uh, to fill in for his cousin to sign the Declaration of, uh, of Independence. Livingston is also interesting because he, his, I mentioned real estate. Well, his real estate wasn't just a business activity. It was also a one that traded hands uh, quite a bit. And the, the way I'll put it is this. There, there was the Battle of Brooklyn Heights and, and Battle of Long Island. Those were huge, huge battles that really, really cost Washington's army. Washington's army was based in, in Brooklyn, and according to um, the source that I read, Washington's army used Philip's home in Brooklyn Heights as a headquarters, and they used it to plan strategy to uh, to come up with ways to counter the British. Unfortunately, they had to flee, and they flew across to uh, to New Jersey, and eventually led to other battles like Battle of Princeton and others. And then when the British really took over New York City, what used to be the Washington's headquarters then turned into a Royal Navy hospital for the British. And not only that, the British took over Philip's home in Manhattan. So they literally used his home in Manhattan as, as a headquarters too. It's just it just kind of boggles my mind. It's like, boy, can you imagine if you had if you're a wealthy delegate, you put all this money into your business, but also to the cause, and to realize that two of your homes are being occupied by the enemy. It's, it's just, it just blows my mind. It it's a weird weird story, but it, it shows how how consequential um, a lot of these battles were, uh, and it certainly it hits home. Literally hits home for for some of the signers. In this movement. Now, Livingston is one to continue to to serve to the best of his ability. He was before the signing. He did sign that olive branch petition to try and and try and come up with something. Unfortunately, it was it's one of those documents where you send it to someone who is already angry. You're asking them to stop being angry and. 99.9% of the time, it never happens. So it was that was the kind of the first, I call it the first unofficial Declaration of Independence, which which wasn't a Declaration of Independence, but it was like the first document to try try and work something out before of that huge, huge monumental document that we 
we talk about so much in this series. One final note before we get into some reflection on Philip Livingston and some of the ideas that he made or some of the contributions that he's put into the American independence cause is the, the reason why Robert Jr. tasked him to sign the Declaration of Independence. I couldn't find any definitive source that could tell me why Philip was chosen. My guess is really that connection with uh, Robert Jr.'s father. And, and, and what was striking to me was that Robert Sr. Uh, actually passed away in 1775. I'm curious to know if this was not only a, a mandatory task that obviously Robert Jr. wanted to complete, but I wonder if it was also a bit of an honor to Robert Sr. as well. Since Robert Sr. never was alive to see the Declaration of Independence, I'm I'm very, very curious. Hopefully, maybe there's some kind of research that's out there already or in the future to really look and see what that what that symbolic symbolic meaning is of Philip filling in for the family. Philip also had a brother named William Livingston who actually signed the the Constitution. So this is a family that was really, really good at signing things. <laughs> so really, really good at attending uh, these uh, these huge political conventions. Seems like they were they probably had a hand in almost everything that was happening during the, during the uh, revolution and even just before, from the time of the Stamp Act to the lead up to the Declaration of Independence. Philip is kind of right in the middle of those things, and while he is again not the famous guy, not the not the biggest a biggest deal breaker, uh, but he does I think, do an important job for his cousin, for uh, for Robert Jr.'s father, Robert Sr. And also, Robert Jr. also had a lot of other things, too. So it was, it was, kind of, it was a good, maybe a good transactional relationship, too. One signs for the other, the other taking care of business back home. While Philip Livingston was incredibly active in the 1760s, 17, early 1770s, into the middle of the decade, um, health began to become a big issue for him. While he was still able to serve in a session of Congress, a member of the New York State Senate, he passes away on June 12, 1778. Now, to reflect on Philip, I came up with two things. The first is... I think as a society, we need to really contemplate what non-political institutions should do in our lives. I say that because it seems like a lot of things nowadays are are just muddled into the political world. I mentioned how Philip founded the New York Society Library and the Chamber of Commerce, and there's certainly involved in some sort of political founding, right, with regards to just, just how, how you found institutions. But what about the, the, the non-political institutions in our lives? Think about an institution like a, fam- like a group of friends or your family or a, non- or a charity that you work for or perhaps a sports team you root for. What are the roles of those institutions and those organizations in politics? Should they have any role whatsoever? Recently, I was giving a guest lecture, and I was asking the students this very question. Should we overall increase or decrease political participation in non-political institutions? On the one hand, there are arguments saying that 
so, so many things are tied in politics that you can't you can't separate them. On the other hand, there's people who say we have to draw a line between political stuff or political things and non-political things. If we get too caught up too much in politics everywhere, we we might lose out on the essence of of the things we cherish. And I just want to put out that question to you because I believe this is this is fundamentally significant for every single person out there, whether people are in politics or not. A lot of times I do think that we we get so caught up in current events, so much so much material that doesn't have any sort of relevance to our lives or to a lot of people's lives, that in fact it might be a bit of an illusion, that something that passes in Congress may somehow all of a sudden change everything. That rarely, rarely, rarely happens. However, we're, we're so caught up in in, in virtue signaling, uh, and I say we as in like a lot of a lot of companies and organizations, not necessarily individuals, but we we certainly have seen in our society all these examples of people writing things like you know end racism or you know equality for all. They're just, just these broad statements that have no meaning whatsoever. Is that really what we want for our institutions, or do we want to go back to the fundamentals? Go back to why we love sports, why we love family, why we love friends, why we volunteer for that charity. If we start to politicize things, if we start to pit ourselves against each other for no reason, how, what happens to, to, to the integrity and to the unity of, of Americans? The second thing is very much related to what I what I just said. Would think about non political institutions. And that's a quote that comes from the founding of the New York Society Library. I read a, a incredible source that speaks about what what that society was meant to be. And the quote it says that the New York Society should be quote univer- useful as well as ornamental. And I really, really love this quote because it seems like nowadays, with all the things that are going on right now, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of people felt that there's a lot of things that are neither useful nor ornamental. Ornamental being decorative, something something that involves creativity, something that dis, that displays beauty. How much have have we really gained uh, from social media? When it comes to usefulness and ornamental uh, in nature and, and things, is in are the photos digital photos that we take on our smart smartphones? While there might be obviously there's obviously talent in photography, but with so many people posting uh, just sometimes just ridiculous photos or just huge numbers of just what is what is this kind of <laughs> photos? What is the point of of trying to appeal to a mass, trying to to make make one feel better all the time, when we maybe should be thinking about the things that that really matter, like like writing, like thinking, like you know, great conversations too. And I mean, how many times are you really going to have a great conversation online when you could be doing that in person? What sort of things can be useful again, and not just a decoration or a way to to disguise someone's life. Last year, there was the case of Gabby Petito, a a young girl who 
went missing after a a road trip all around the the country with her boyfriend in some van uh, taking pictures in all these different landmarks. All of a sudden, her disappearance just hit the airwaves. And all of a sudden, there was these questions about what the relationship was like and all that, all, all personal information, which I... I fundamentally disagree that it should be should be covered the, the, as much as it did, um, as, even though it was such a, a terribly tragic case. What I found interesting was how there was no commentary on the the on the poor side of social media. This illusion that people felt was was happening. People felt that that illusion was reality. They confused illusion with reality. They saw all the pictures, the footage of the the couple traveling. They thought everything was going great until people started realizing that there was a toxic relationship as it was reported. That there that there was actually physical abuse from one from one side to the other. If that case and other things that we've seen in life don't wake us up about the importance of Focusing on the things that have value and have have some kind of essence. I don't know what does. I've really learned a lot through some of the guests that we've had on the program, and as well as uh, my friends and some of my friends and family. Really having a different outlook on social media. Um, I feel that we we have not gone to gotten into a better place, generally speaking, on on the issue. While there's been some good things coming from it, but I think a lot of people, especially younger people, don't understand the essence. They don't see how it is useful and ornamental. I was having a conversation with my classmate and my, a friend of mine about, and we were studying for an exam, and we were supposed to learn about different schools of social science thought. And one of them is called post-colonialism, which is this idea that that all the biases, all the th- thoughts and paradigms and theories are all from a, a biased Western perspective, um, and therefore there should be no sort of objective truth that comes out of it, and that, that it should, the bias should be stripped away, whatever. First of all, it's such a nonsensical view because Western comprises of John Locke and Karl Marx, and I'm I'm not going to hear anyone who who says that they're of any sort of similarity whatsoever. And even though they're both from the West, so that's that's one crazy element of this of this ideology. But the other thing too is, I, I was talking to him there. He was saying how like what I don't get about he said what I don't get about this ideology is that what what exactly are they doing? Like what 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 is how is this helpful? And he is absolutely right. And I thought about what he said. I said, "You, you, you absolutely hit the nail right on the head. They, they don't help anyone. They can't even help themselves, probably. But the, probably the worst thing is that it, they're almost like anarchists because anarchists basically want to destroy things. They, they want to take something down, and they don't want they don't have anything better to replace it with. And so I do think that in this day and age." We have to get back to the significance of usefulness and and, and creativity. Uh, not not necessarily the words that I uh, from the quote I just said, but the creativity element is so is lost so much from the learning losses during the COVID shutdowns, 
to the people dictating what kind of art should be created or what what movies should be made because the people are afraid that they're going to offend someone. And these are the absolute worst worst kinds of things that we can see in our society. I hope that with some of the stories that we've heard from the signers, including from Philip Livingston, understanding the importance of institutions, places where people can come together to learn and to understand deeply about about thought and about creativity, these should be very much prioritized. And I don't think they need to be politicized. I don't think that politics needs to be everywhere. But that obviously is for all of you to, to think about too. Well, with the podcast, I want people to think for themselves on what the role of political institutions are and non-political institutions are, and to figure out what sort of lines can we draw together. Maybe not necessarily the exact same lines, but at least get to a point where we can start discussing how those institutions should play a role in everyday people's lives. And with that, thank you so much for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Make sure to subscribe once again to our show if you haven't already. If this is your first time, welcome to the program. And don't forget, a day in America is always better when we are with our friends and fellow citizens. 